Good morning, church. How are we? Good. I thought that since we were talking about politics, I was going to bring some axes to church, because why not? So, not only do I have a microphone, but I have sharp things up here, okay? That's a little awkward. I'm sure the people that are at home watching online are like, whew, I'm glad I stayed home today. Um, well, first off, I just want to say thank you for joining us. Uh, welcome to Shelbyville Community Church. Uh, my name's Craig. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at the church, and I'm just I'm grateful that you would choose to be with us this morning. Uh, I know that this is the week of fall break, and so typically uh, a lot of folks head out and go get away. Uh, and so if you're here in person or if you're joining us online, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to join us this morning. Uh, now, uh, I work uh, here at Shelbyville Community Church, right? I'm a pastor here, so I work here full-time. But when I first moved to Shelbyville in 2013, uh, I came from Wisconsin to Indiana specifically for the job that I am doing. Uh, and so the church created a role called Pastor of Communication. Not really a normal thing. Uh, if you look at a lot of other churches, my role does not exist. Uh, and so Basically, they said, hey, we want somebody to come in here that knows uh, how to do digital creation, and we want to use that for the advancement of the gospel. And so they created a job specifically for me to, to come and to do those things. And I got here, and, and I worked full-time for the church, and I was like, man, I, I enjoy what I do, and so uh, I'd like to get to know people in the community. And so I started working for the hospital, and I started working for some realty property groups in Shelbyville, and I started working for the Chamber of Commerce. And I was doing so much work outside of my job here that at that point, uh, my good friend Jason, and he was my boss at the time, he said, Craig, you need to find a hobby outside of a screen. Like, you need to find something uh, that does not involve a screen or you are going to get burnt out if this is what you do all day, every day. And so that's when uh, my life took this awkward left turn, and I went from being a computer nerd to this weird lumberjack, and um, I started getting into woodworking. And I really, like, I had no idea what I was doing. Like, I just started buying tools and making stuff in my garage, and I continued to learn more and more about this and get more into it, and I found out that, hey, um, wood doesn't just come from Home Depot, it actually comes from trees, right? And so uh, there's trees that need to get cut down, and then they get turned into logs, which get milled into boards, which then get turned into furniture. And so uh, I started looking into this whole process, and uh, I ended up spending a lot of time with Mark Farnsley out in his woods this past winter, and I thought, you know what, if I am going to be a lumberjack, I need to get me an axe, right? Uh, so I started looking into axes, and I started researching axes on the internet, and what I found is that some of the greatest axes and some of the best axes that are made are made in Sweden. Uh, now, I am Swedish. I'm very Swedish. My nickname is the Swedish Meatball, and uh, I like things from Sweden, and so I thought it was really cool that this axe was actually hand-forged in Sweden. This is a Holtzbrook carpenter's axe. Uh, Holtzbrook started making axes in Sweden in 1697, right? These are the facts you come to church for, and uh, this particular axe is made for carpentry, right? Uh, people that build log homes, people that do a lot of fine work will use an axe like this because it's got what's called a flat pole here for driving in nails, for driving in wedges and stakes and that kind of stuff. Uh, it's got a flat blade up here, so if you're trying to take uh, a circular log and you're trying to make it flat, you can actually shave that off. Now, this particular axe is great for a lot of things, but if I tried to cut down a forest with this axe, I would probably die, right? Like, it's not going to work. It's just, it's not enough. And so, then you move up to, to the big daddy, right? This is a three and a half pound uh, Grands Forest Brooks 
double bit axe. Uh, this particular axe was forged in Sweden in early 1900. Uh, I'm nerdy, right? So I went on eBay and I bought one, brought it uh, to the States, restored it, made a handle for it, hung it, and I actually don't use this. Uh, I just stare at it because it looks cool. But nothing says lumberjack like a double bit axe. You see, up until uh, the chainsaw got popular in the 1950s, this was the ultimate tool for a lumberjack, right? And the point of a double-bit axe is you actually have two cutting bits. And if you're trying to fell a tree or drop a tree, right, you need to uh, file this a certain way so that when you chop with it, you're actually severing the wood fibers, right? You are literally chopping through and cutting out wood, but the best part of a double-bit axe is not only can you have that side filed one way, but you can file the other side for a totally different task. And so there's folks that if they're trying to remove a tree, right, they'll have one end sharpened really finely, and they'll have one that's really blunt, and they'll use it for busting up roots, or they'll use it for breaking off tree limbs. And so the type of work that an axe man does determines the way that he utilizes his tools. And what I started thinking through is, all right, these axes that came from Sweden, like all four of my dad's grandparents came from Sweden, uh, I'm curious if any of the forges that these were made uh, are near where my great-grandparents came from, okay? So I started doing a little digging, and what I uh, found out is that my great-grandfather, Gustav Linus Olsen, what a name, uh, Grandpa Gus, moved to the United States in 1911, and uh, I started looking online and was able to find some paperwork. And this piece right here is actually uh, his declaration of intent to become a citizen here of the United States. And there's two things that really stick out to me. The first is that my great-grandfather was five and a half feet tall and weighed 150 pounds. Um, I don't know where I came from because that's not me, right? Uh, the second thing, and where we're headed this morning is at the bottom. It says, it is my bona fide intention to renounce forever my allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty, and particularly to Gustavus V, king of Sweden, of whom I am now a subject. Like, I was born in Wisconsin, right? And I'm aware some of you think that's Canada, but I was born in the United States. Uh, and so I have never had to fill out paperwork declaring that I'm giving up or renouncing any allegiance to another country, to another ruler, to anything. But the more I started thinking through this, the more I realized, you know what? The one time in my life that I did have to pledge allegiance to somebody is when I gave my life to Christ. Right, when I was 16 years old, I went on a mission trip. Uh, I accepted Christ as my Savior, and it was at that point in my life where I said, you know what, Jesus, the things that rule me, the things that consume me, the ways that I view myself, I'm laying it all down because I believe that you are better and you are far superior. And so viewing myself as God was laid down because of King Jesus. Me viewing myself as king of my life was laid down because of King Jesus. The way that I spend my money was laid down because of King Jesus. And we could go on and on and on. And the reality is that every single one of us that have put our faith in Christ, we too have had to renounce the things that have ruled us in favor of King Jesus. 
And so we are in week three of The Elephant in the Room, right? In this series, we're looking at faith and life and politics and how this all plays out and what this looks like, right? Uh, November's coming, right? People have been voting. There's all sorts of just political stuff in the air, right? You can't go online. You can't turn on the TV. Uh, you can't go to your mailbox without getting something reminding you that this crucial election is taking place and our country is literally like in the balance of whether it's going to fail or succeed. And if that's so crucial, I think that Scripture probably has some things to say about it, right? And so during the first week of this series, Pastor Brad looked at the truth and looked at the reality that if you have put your faith in Christ, you are a child of God, right? That not only has he adopted you into his family, but he has accepted you and he's called you his own. And then last week, Pastor Mike and Pastor Jess, they looked at this prayer of Jesus where Jesus literally prayed for us. And he prayed for unity and he prayed that as a church that we would be one, that nothing would divide us. And they challenged us and they said, hey, when it comes to politics and it comes to your relationships, are you allowing politics to burn bridges or are you using them to build bridges? And this morning, we're going to close out this series by looking at the reality that if you have put your trust in Christ, that you are a citizen of heaven before you are a citizen here on earth. Right? So we're going to dig into this. We're going to be looking at the book of Philippians. I'm going to open up there. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3. If you uh, brought your phone, if you want to open up and take sermon notes, you can go to insidescc.org. There's a take sermon notes button that you can hit. You can punch in all your info and it'll email it to you. We're going to start in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 18. <clears throat> says, For I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many lives as enemy, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. And these three verses are part of a larger passage in which uh, Paul talks about examples that we set and the examples that we follow. And Paul's writing to the church in Philippi and he's encouraging them to look at the folks that they are choosing to follow. It was pretty common, especially in Jewish culture and in early church culture, for people to talk about uh, who they were a disciple of. And so you had people that would follow John the Baptist, and they would learn his teaching and his way of doing things, and they would say, I am a disciple of John the Baptist. And then you had the disciples that followed Jesus, and they said, I am a disciple of Jesus. Well, this kind of continued on to where you would look at early church figures, and people would say, yeah, well, I follow so-and-so. And so Paul is saying, look at these individuals that you're following. Look at the examples that you're following. Because here's the deal. Some of them claim to be Christians, but in reality, they're enemies of the cross. It actually says that Paul is so upset over this, he is writing through his tears. 
Like the fact that there are people that claim to be doing things in the name of Christ when in reality it's all about them, it drives me to tears. The fact that they are leading so many astray, it's tearing me up. And so Paul is saying, avoid the patterns of pretenders and earthly-minded people. People that claim to do things for Christ when in reality they're doing it for themselves. They claim to be uh, more interested in comfort than expanding the kingdom of God. They claim Jesus is king, but they never tell anybody about him. Their gods are their stomach. Life is all about food and wine and bodily pleasure. They're constantly pursuing what feels good. Their glory is in their shame. Right? They boast of things that are opposite of what God calls good. They're boasting in how many people they've hooked up with. They're boasting in how they cheated and lied and stealed and got away with it. They boast about how they've acquired the latest and greatest. They boast about how great they are. Their glory is in their shame. And their mind is on earthly things. Right? They're more obsessed with stuff here on earth than they are in what is to come. They invest more in stuff here on earth than in the kingdom that is to come. And then he pivots. And he throws in a reminder, but our citizenship is in heaven. You see, the more that you walk with Christ and the more you mature in your relationship with Christ, the more that you will realize and see that you are not from this world. That this place is not our home. I don't know about you, but when I look at people and I see them taking care of the vulnerable, when I see people caring for orphans, doing what is good and right and true, giving to the poor, speaking life and encouraging words to one another, outdoing one another in showing honor, showing no partiality or bias, putting the needs of others ahead of their own, makes me say, this kind of smells like heaven. When you experience the things of the kingdom of God here on earth, it should cause you to crave more of it. In church, this is our responsibility, right? We should be giving the world a glimpse of what is coming in the future. If we can show people what our king is like and what his kingdom is like. People should look at your words and deeds and they should say, man, you're, you're not from around here, are you? Like you stick out, you're just a little different. Why? What is that? What's different about you? You see, bad examples set their minds on earthly things while faithful examples live in light of their true citizenship. In his book, Mere Christianity, author C.S. Lewis, he writes, if you read history, you will see that Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most about the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective at this. Right? The Christians that served uh, the greatest, the, the Christians that did the most in their present world are the Christians that instead of focusing on all the problems and all the issues that surround them, they're so focused on what is to come that they want people to experience that. That they are so enamored with the future life that is coming that it drives everything that they do today. 
And not only as citizens of heaven should we be living out of the kingdom's values, but we should be awaiting heaven's Lord. I love how this is written. It says, we should be eagerly awaiting a Savior from heaven. Our minds should be so focused on what is coming that when we experience horrible things on earth, this should cause us to groan. Now, I'm going to get pretty real. And honestly, I, I stood up here and I bawled like a baby in first service. Uh, a little over six and a half weeks ago, my wife and I became foster parents to a six-year-old little girl. And um, that day is a day that I will never forget, the day that she moved in with us. Uh, I was here. I was working in my office over here, and I got a call from DCS, and they said, hey, we're going to be at your house in like an hour and 15 minutes. We've got a little girl. Like, that's how quickly our, our world changed, right? You've got an hour and 15 minutes to get ready to take in a kid. And so I left, and I went home, and I started cleaning things up around the house, and I went into this room that we had tried to make sure was ready for her and, and just clean and straighten things up. And we sat, and we waited, and we waited, and they were like three hours late. And so my wife and I are just sitting on the couch anticipating how much our life is about to change and just waiting for the moment that they pull into our driveway. And finally it happened, and a gal named Libby uh, pulled into our driveway with the six-year-old little girl, and they got out of her car, and they walked up to our door, and we opened that door, and there was this little girl just looking at us. And she actually had come from relatively decent homes before she came to live with us. And so uh, she had a fair amount of stuff. And so we went to Libby's car and we pulled out her suitcases and her bike and her toys and we brought them into our home. And uh, one of the things that you have to do when you bring in a foster kid is you have to take uh, a log of everything that they came with. And so we went through every item that she moved in with and we had to write it all down and document it. So if she leaves our home at some point, we know exactly what things she came with. And we filled out more paperwork than if we were, were buying a house. Like, I mean, and it makes sense, right? You're taking possession of a human being. It sounds like I just bought a car, right? Uh, and so we sit at the table and we're filling out paperwork and filling this all out. And they're doing this big log and going through an inventory of all the stuff that she came with. And it was like 10 o'clock at night and we were finally done. And so Taylor helped her unpack some of her clothes and helped her get changed into PJs. And it's time for bed. And so... Taylor and I are standing in the doorway of this bedroom that's now the bedroom of a six-year-old little girl. And she started asking us questions. And so she started spitting out question after question, and my wife was such a rock star. I mean, she answered all of them with such grace and compassion. And this little girl sitting in a bed that she's never slept in, in a house that she doesn't know with two total strangers, asked a question that I was not ready to hear. She said, if I get scared tonight, what do I call you? And I walked into our bathroom and I closed the door I just thought, this is not okay. This isn't right. No six-year-old should ever have to ask those questions. Ever. 
They should know where they are. They should know who they're with. They should know that they're safe. And I watched my wife transform into a mom to this beautiful little kid. And she made sure that that girl felt as safe as she possibly could with all the new that she was experiencing. You see, there are things that we are going to experience on this side of heaven that are not okay. There are things that we will experience here on this side of heaven that we should never have had to experience. Ever. And it should cause us to groan. It should cause us to beg for Jesus to come back. You know, I don't know about you guys, but the more friends and family I have that get diagnosed with cancer, the more I want Jesus to come back. The two times that I've experienced racism towards the little girl in my home, I've wanted Jesus to come back. When I visit homes made of trash in a community dump in Brazil, the more I want Jesus to come back. The more people that I meet in our community that have been affected by addiction, the more I want Jesus to come back. Every night when this little girl prays that her mom would get better, I want Jesus to come back. When I visit places that have been destroyed by natural disasters, I want Jesus to come back. And the beautiful, beautiful news is that He is. Right? King Jesus is coming back. And the most beautiful part of this is it says that He has the power to bring everything under His control. Everything. Like, this should be the drum that we beat until our arms fall off. Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, and he was raised from the dead. Jesus has the ability to make all things new. All things new. This should be our mindset day in and day out. This should be the message that we communicate day in and day out. I wish that Christians were as passionate about this truth as they are the political figures that they back. Because I don't care who you vote for, they're going to fail. And if you believe that if we get the right candidate in the right office, that everything's going to get better, you're a fool. The only king that is going to do that is Jesus. Amen? Amen. So what does it look like to be citizens of heaven and live on earth? I think 1 Peter chapter 2 has quite a bit to say, so we're going to dig in there. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. It says, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. 
Show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. So we're going to walk through a few observations, right? And these get a little uncomfortable, just warning you. It's kind of a minefield. That's why I brought access to church. I'm kidding. Here's the deal. What Peter's telling us here is that submitting to authority is a way of surrendering to God. Doesn't sound awesome, doesn't sound comfortable, but it's true, right? Submitting to authority is a way of surrendering to God. Why? Because there is no authority except which came from God, except that that came from God, right? Kings and queens, presidents and prime ministers, dictators and despots, they all rule by the grace of God. Romans 13:1 it says let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. And Jesus while on trial is talking to Pontius Pilate. Pilate's talking about how great he is and Jesus responds, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Even while on trial, Jesus, God of the universe, Submitted to authority here on earth. Peter says, Submit to every human authority, not for your sake, but for the Lord's. Right? You don't submit to authority for the good of other people. You don't submit to the Lord even for your, you don't submit to authority even for yourself. You do it on behalf of God. You do it for the Lord's sake. You see, citizens of heaven, we submit to authority as a way of surrendering to God even if we don't vote for that authority. Why? Because there's no authority except that from God. So here's the reality, right? If Donald Trump gets reelected, it's because God ordained it. If Joe Biden gets elected, it's because God ordained it. If Joe Jorgensen gets elected, it's because God ordained it. Whoever wins governor elections, whoever wins Senate seats, in any form of election from here on out, whoever gets elected is there because God has placed them there. So it's important to vote, but it's also important to respect the individuals that have been placed there by God. And Peter tells us it's our responsibility to submit to them, even if we don't like them, even if we didn't vote for them. Why? For the Lord's sake. Second observation, justice is the goal of healthy governmental authority. Justice is the goal of healthy healthy governmental authority. Peter says, you know, the authority is set up to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. And Paul in in, uh, Romans chapter 13, he says something very similar. He says, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. And if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on wrongdoers. Right? Justice is the goal of healthy governmental authority. But what happens when injustice is the goal of unhealthy governmental authority? Right? There are times when leaders in government are not going to serve the people that they are positioned to lead. 
there have been and will continue to be leaders that are more invested in themselves and in their advancement than for the good of the people that they serve. And what's interesting is that at the time that that Peter is writing this, this is during the Roman Empire. And Peter's writing this letter, and, and the fifth emperor of Rome is in control. And his name is Nero. Nero came to power. He wasn't even 17 years old when he came to be emperor of the greatest empire at this point in human history. And Nero's reign was marked with extravagance, was marked with violence, was marked with debauchery. None of those things sound like they came from heaven. And Peter is still writing, submit to authority for the Lord's sake. Now what's interesting is that Peter actually went on to be killed for his faith in Jesus under the Roman Empire, under Nero. He would go on to give up his life for his faith in Christ. But he still calls believers to submit to authority for the Lord's sake. The only time in which citizens of heaven are allowed to disobey authority is when that authority demands that we disobey Jesus. The only time that citizens of heaven are allowed to disobey authority is when that authority demands that we disobey Jesus. Right? As citizens heaven, as citizens of heaven, Jesus is our absolute authority. He is our king. He is the ultimate master that we serve. In the book of Daniel, we see several times where kings decree that people forego their relationship with God. Right? We see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get thrown into a fiery furnace. Why? Because the king said, I want you to bow down to idols and I want you to bow down to gods of Babylon. And if you don't do that, you're going in the oven. And they said, cool deal. We won't disobey God. We'll disobey you. And they went into the furnace. Right? God rescued them. It's a beautiful story, right? And we see a couple chapters later, Daniel is thrown into a lion's den. Why? Because the king decreed that you should only worship me as God. And Daniel said, no, nah, I'm going to keep praying to my God and I'm going to keep worshiping my God. The only time that citizens of heaven are to disobey authority is when authority calls us to disobey Jesus. And it gets sticky, right? Because... Some rulers and some governments are good, and some are bad. Some reward the right and punish the wrong, and others do the reverse. The reality is that most do a little of both. Another observation, Christians silence criticism through appropriate compliance. Christians silence criticism through appropriate compliance. You see, Christians are known more for what they're against than what they're for. We enjoy standing up and telling people that they're wrong and telling people that we're opposed to what they do. But here's the deal. Christians believe some pretty weird stuff, okay? Right? I'm a pastor and I'm telling you this, right? We believe that our God was born from a virgin woman We celebrate his death through eating his flesh and blood. We believe that our God raised from the dead. 
from the outside, when you look at the claims of Christianity, you think, these people are loony, right? This stuff is goofy, right? It does not make sense. So Peter's saying, here's the deal. If these are things that you believe, if these are things that you claim to be true, how on earth are people going to look at your God and say, I want to follow him when they aren't willing to follow the leaders that they can actually see? If you aren't willing to submit to authority of leaders and rulers that are here on earth that I can see, how on earth are you saying you submit to a God that was born from a virgin? They're going to start picking you apart. And so Peter's saying, you know what? The best way to silence criticism is through being compliant. Again, unless authority is telling you to disobey Jesus, we were not saved from sin to go on and do our own thing. We were not saved from sin to live life how we choose to. We were saved from sin to serve. We were saved to serve God. We were saved to serve people. We should be looking for every opportunity to comply, not rebel. Why? For the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. You know, everyone is deserving of honor. This is closing out this end to this passage, right? Everyone is deserving honor, even imperfect leaders. You know, just because our Constitution says that we can do something doesn't mean that Jesus does. And while as Americans we have the right to say as we please, Jesus does not agree. The things that come out of our mouth have the ability to kill. So when Jesus says, honor everyone, honor everyone, in his kingdom, everyone will be honored. You know, I think if we look at at current circumstances happening in society, I would say that honor is a much bigger deal than most of us think on the surface, right? Black Lives Matter believes that black folks are not being honored. Back the Blue believes that police lives are not being honored. People are picketing athletes that kneel for the anthem because they believe that soldiers' lives are not being honored. Honor is a way bigger deal than most of us think, and it's causing some pretty massive issues in our country. What does Peter say? Honor everyone. Doesn't matter if they vote like you, doesn't matter if they think like you, doesn't matter if they believe what you believe, you honor them. Because they're human beings created in the image of God. From the womb to the tomb, human lives matter. Honor them. Honor everyone, even imperfect leaders. Love demands forfeiting our right for the good of our church family. Love demands forfeiting our rights for the good of our church family. And as I started digging into this, I started looking into, all right, what, what love uh, is used here? And I'm digging into the, the definition of this. And this is literally what the word love in this statement means. It says, an affection characterized by a willing forfeiture of rights or privileges on behalf of another. And there is no better example of this than Jesus on the cross. 
See, Jesus wasn't obligated to die on the cross. He chose to. Jesus did not have to uh, atone for sin. He had never sinned, right? He had no sin to atone for. He didn't have to face the cross. He didn't deserve to be tempted. He didn't, ex- <clears throat> he didn't deserve to be hungry. He didn't deserve to be tired or beaten or to die. But he chose to. He laid down his life. He forfeited his rights and his privileges on behalf of you and me. You see, our freedom, our rights, and our privileges are not the highest value as disciples of Jesus. They make us very American, but they don't make us very Christian. And finally, Christians honor everyone, but we only fear God. Right? Fear and honor sound very similar, but they aren't synonyms. Right? Fear and honor are not the same thing. Honor is about how we behave. Honor is about how we act and what we say. It's about how we show respect to other people. Fear is a deep awe or reverence. It's a horrible, horrible example and illustration, but it's the best I can do, right? I don't know, 10 years ago, a cute little boy by the name of Justin Bieber got really popular. Talk about a left turn, right? (coughs) Justin Bieber shows up on the scene, and girls are going mad, right? Fanning themselves, wigging out. Their bedroom is plastered in Justin Bieber. They're going to marry that boy someday. And there is video after video of girls that are freaking out, and they finally get up, and they get the chance to meet Justin Bieber, and they stand in awe of him. And they open their mouth, and nothing comes out because they are so in fear of the fact that this creature is in front of them. If that's how people respond to Justin Bieber, imagine what it's like to stand in awe of God. You know, Peter's saying, show respect to everyone, honor everyone, but only fear God. And not in a sense that you're scared of him, but in a sense that you hold him in a special place that no one else has access to. So this begs the question, what is most important to you? Your freedom or Christ's reputation? Because when we submit to authority for the Lord's sake, we make it about Him. We say, you know what, Jesus? I am submitting to you, therefore I am submitting to the authority that you have put into place. Even when I don't like them, even when I think they're dumb, still submitting to them because you put them there for the Lord's sake. Christ's reputation is on the line, church. The way that we talk about other people, the way that we engage in our community, the way that we put faith in political leaders, it's all about Jesus' reputation. See, I think that far too many of us have taken the tools that we've been given as citizens in the kingdom of heaven. We've said, you know what? I think swinging this bad boy all day is going to take a lot of work. I think that trying to to chop down the issues in our community is going to take a lot of work. 
think it's going to take a lot of energy. I think it's going to take some skills that I don't have. I think it's going to take getting uncomfortable. I think it's going to be dangerous. And so I'm going to take my skill set. I'm going to take my gifting. I'm going to take my spiritual gifts, and I'm going to hang them up. And instead, I'm going to pick up a ballot, and I'm going to say, you know what? Whoever I vote for, I'm just trusting that they're going to take care of these things on my behalf. Jesus is saying, nah, the work that I have for you is way more important. The work that I have for you is the reason that I'm calling you to it because you're going to be able to fix some of these issues. You know, the foster care system is broken. I've been in it for a couple of months. But if I don't engage in what is broken, it's never going to get better. Homelessness is never going to get fixed by the government is a call to the church to take care of human beings. Hunger, addiction, job readiness, on and on and on and on and on. Here's the deal. There is no magic pill. There's no one-way ticket to fixing all of this. It's a lot of work, and Jesus is calling us to engage in it. All right? And so this fall, starting next week, we're actually going to begin this two-year journey, this two-year campaign of hard work, of dedication. It's work that we've been called to as a church, and it's work that's going to require that every single one of us goes all in. Every single one of us is going to be called to go all in on our relationship with Jesus. We're going to be called to go all in on family ministry in our community. We're going to be called to go all in on the needs, physical, tangible needs in our community. And here's the deal. The eight pastors on staff, we can't do this on our own. There's no chance. It's like us trying to cut down a forest with one axe. It's going to take all of us as a family. It's going to take an entire kingdom from heaven on this side of heaven to see anything change. So I want you guys to check out the screen real quick and get a little bit of a taste of where we're headed. When a small group of people decided to go all in and start Shelbyville Community Church, that decision built a foundation that's impacted the lives of thousands of people in our 27 year history. And now we have that same opportunity to go all in and build on that foundation with the hope and transforming message of Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1, we're told that Jesus has subjected everything under his feet so that he might come to have first place in everything. And that is what our discipleship journey, this all-in journey, is all about. I know God is going to do some amazing things as we stand together. I can't wait to see what God's going to do through us. So my hope is that you guys will join us. Starting next Sunday, uh, we're going to meet for five weeks and we're going to look at the things that God has for us the work that he's calling us to here in our community, here in our church, here in our individual lives. And so whether you're here in person or you're here online, I want as many people to show up as possible 
Because what God is calling us to, it's massive. It's absolutely massive. And it's for the good of our community, and it's for the saving of many lives. Right? And so on top of uh, a series that's happening on Sundays, this journey is going to last for two years. There's small groups that are going to be involved with it. In a couple weeks, we've got some vision nights. So if you've got your phone or you've got a calendar, and you want to write down, October 27th and October 29th at 7 o'clock here, we're going to have a couple vision nights walking through what we're doing, where we're headed, the projects that we're getting involved in, the things that we feel that God is calling us to engage in here in our community. All right? So I want as many of you as possible here for the next five weeks on Sunday mornings and for one of those two nights next week to hear a little bit of what we're going to do. So I'm going to pray. And we're going to welcome the team up, and we will close out our service together. King Jesus, I am so grateful that you are on the throne. I pray that as a church that we would put first our citizenship in your kingdom, our citizenship in heaven, and that every day that we would engage in the things that you have called us to for the betterment of your kingdom. God, I pray for great wisdom as folks head to polls. I pray that you would speak very clearly to each one of us and who it is that we should vote for. And I pray that each one of us would recognize and have grace for whoever wins, knowing that they have been placed there by you. And I pray that our church would be marked as a church that submits to authority, even if we don't like them. That we would be a church that respects and honors and submits for your sake. God, I pray that you would challenge folks, that if they've looked to political figures as saviors, that they would see that those people aren't capable of making all things new in the way that you are. And God, I pray that the gospel, the good news, the fact that you died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and that you rose from the dead, that this would become the message of our church, that this would be the drum that we beat until our arms fall off, that everything that we do would point to that truth, that every time that we experience something on this side of heaven that we shouldn't, that as we groan, that we eagerly anticipate your coming. So Jesus, I'm so grateful for you and the reminder that you gave us this morning. And I pray this in your name. Amen.